Well, you know, I am thoroughly excited about the message. This is one of the reasons I came back. You know, I'm stirred up about mysteries. I'm stirred up about the things that the Lord has given me to, to share with you and preach to you. Now, this is number nine in the series that I've been in, our ninth Sunday, entitled The Mysteries of the Kingdom. And of course, the word mystery, as I've shared, and as you know, means not profitable to the natural understanding. Musterion is the Greek word. It means simply you don't understand. Something that doesn't track logically, that you don't put together properly with, with other information or other knowledge that you have, it just doesn't seem to fit. You don't understand something. Now that's the way the entire Word of God is to the unbeliever. According to Mark chapter 4, Jesus said that unless a person's sin is forgiven and they're converted, then all of the things they hear that we find in the Word of God are done in parables that they can't understand. It's not given to them to know. So, you know, of course, that means we should understand that we don't argue Scripture with an unbeliever. One issue only, and that's his salvation because they have no capacity to understand it. But Jesus said that it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. It's important to God that you understand the things that He communicates through His Word and by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but you know there are going to be occasions and times throughout your life as a believer when if the Holy Ghost doesn't illuminate something for you, you're just not going to get it. But a good part of the responsibility for mysteries being resolved and for you understanding kingdom operation, which is necessary, for that understanding to come, you're going to have to help, you know, position your life for that revelation. And that is through study and prayer that we position ourselves. You're not going to know everything all at once. It's not going to happen automatically. It's not going to fall on your, your head like a ripe apple out of a tree. Uh, it's going to be a process of the Holy Spirit, who is the agent of revelation, revealing things to you that you need to know, whether it's about the larger plan of God or the will of God for your individual life, whether it's you know, uh, something that has become a stumbling block for you. Why did this happen to that person? Or I've prayed and I've done this and yet I haven't seen results. Why, Lord? We have questions all the time. And for them to be answered by the Lord, we have to recognize some of them are not going to probably be answered till sometime in the future. Because it has everything to do with our maturity in the Lord and how we handle certain information when we get it. And of course, the process of maturity is a lifelong process. So, uh, as Brother Hagen and others have said, you know, if there's something you don't get, something you don't understand, just put it on the mental shelf and trust that God will reveal it to you in the proper time. And He will. But there are, on the other hand, Ten things that I've found in the Word, in the New Testament, uh, ten mysteries that God specifically refers to 
And even goes to the extent of saying, you know, on an occasion or two, don't be ignorant of this. <clears throat> Meaning that he talks about certain mysteries in the New Testament that are important for us to understand now. He wants us not to be ignorant of these things. He wants us to have light and illumination so we are fully equipped to walk out his plan, to follow his leading, and to fulfill his purpose. And so it's these ten mysteries that we're going through one by one. We've gotten through four of them so far um, with the, in the past nine Sundays. And uh, it is true that anointed preaching, that's why you need to pray for me. That's why you need to pray for any preacher that you sit under, uh, for the utterance to come forth that will reveal to your understanding things you need to know. And so we're going through these 10 mysteries in this series because there are things that I believe God has made it clear we need to know in order to function effectively in His kingdom at this point in time. And without reviewing any of the other four mysteries that we've already talked about, uh, I will simply say that Today we're going to talk about one that I believe is very timely, the mystery of lawlessness. Um, the King James calls it the mystery of iniquity. But, you know, all of the other translations use the term lawlessness without law. Uh, the, I like the way the Amplified puts it. Well, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But the mystery of lawlessness, there are a lot of things we don't understand about the lawlessness, the anarchy we're seeing that seems to run rampant in our society in many ways. And, you know, the understanding, the lack of understanding as to why this is occurring, why in the world would people want to tear down the most free, the, most, the, the greatest nation that's ever existed? You know, our understanding of why this is happening is usually a little bit dark. I, I have trouble understanding that in the natural. And then understanding what I can do or what we can do to correct the problem and to bring about <clears throat> a respect for law, which is the only way social chaos is avoided. God creates out of chaos. He doesn't create chaos he creates out of chaos. And that certainly includes the social arena. So at any rate, let's begin by looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. And before I begin reading, we, we should set the stage for verse 6. If you were to read earlier in this chapter, you would see that the church at Thessalonica was uptight about the fact that perhaps the day of the Lord had already come and, you know, they'd missed something here. They were concerned that the day of the Lord was at hand. And, um, and Paul is saying, no, something has to occur before the day of the Lord will come, and that's the revelation of the Antichrist. He says that earlier in this chapter, the son of perdition or the Antichrist, must be revealed in his time. You know, the end of the church age is something that happens 
in the fullness of God's time. And it's not going to unfold without the revelation of the Antichrist. That's the first event of the seven years we refer to as the tribulation, the revelation of the Antichrist. And upon initial revelation, he's going to be seen as a man of peace, as you know. But he can't even be revealed until something occurs. And we see in verse 6, Now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. Next verse. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. You know, sometimes the, the King James and the archaic English that it's translated into seems to cloud the meaning a little bit, but basically we're being told that there is an agency in the earth right now that determines whether or not that spirit of Antichrist, the mystery of iniquity, is going to be at work or not. And that agency is going to determine, you know, um, how much is let and when it's allowed. Now that says a lot to us because According to most of the commentaries you read, the hinderer of lawlessness, which is who this agency is, is the church. Most of your, you know, your commentators agree that it is the church. There's some discussion about whether it's the Spirit-filled church or perhaps even just the Holy Ghost. No, the Holy Spirit's going to be here all through the tribulation. He's not going to be taken out of the way. He's the agent of sanctification. There are going to be a lot of people getting born again during the tribulation. He'll still be here. But it's the church that is the hinderer of lawlessness. And we're told in this verse that this is a mystery. This mystery of iniquity. Now the word iniquity is the one that, that uh, is so important. Uh, it is translated as lawlessness, either because of ignorance of the law or rebellion against it. But it is a state of lawlessness. Now in the civil arena, we would call that anarchy. And there are anarchists at work throughout America today that want to destroy this nation. For whatever reason, it's hard to understand. It's a mystery. This is the freest nation that has ever been brought into existence on this planet. The freest, most prosperous, most opportunity for liberty and freedom that any nation has ever offered. That doesn't mean we've arrived. You know, it's a, an ongoing process since the nation was founded, but still, why would anyone want to tear this down? It's beyond our understanding until we realize that this mystery of iniquity or lawlessness, as we keep, keep, keep reading, is the spirit of Antichrist. It is the most satanic influence that he's able, the enemy of our soul is able to exert on a human being, manifest in the person of the Antichrist. And of course, at his heart, 
at his core is to divide and conquer. And if there are moral and ethical boundaries in place in a society, that can happen. That's what law is. The imposition of moral and ethical boundaries which will support the good of that particular community or group of people. I like the way the Amplified reads this verse. It talks about for the mystery of lawlessness. No, the Amplified. Leave that verse up. I like the way the Amplified uh, renders this. Uh, it talks about the mystery of lawlessness and then parenthetically it says in the Amplified, uh, rebellion against constituted authority. So that's what we're talking about. Rebellion against constituted authority. And the implication is properly constituted authority. We know from the word authority can be usurped. But authority itself, all is granted by God. We see that in the word. Every office of authority is granted by God. He is the, the one that constitutes authority that is to work in this earth. All kinds of authority, whether it's spiritual, whether it's civil, whether it's in the vocational arena, authority is given to eliminate the prospect of social chaos or anarchy. So it is, uh, you know, the enemy's ultimate goal to remove moral boundaries so lawlessness can bring down the, the kingdoms that God is sponsoring and building on this earth. Well, let's take a, a, a look at uh, the matter of authority in Romans 13 for a moment because there are two kinds of authority or two kinds of law, I should say. Uh, there is kingdom law, or you could say God's law, which comes to us through the Word of God. The Word of God is actually called law. And that's gotten to be a, a, an abused term in some circles, you know, like we got to get away from law. And it's all about grace. Well, certainly... You know, uh, the grace of God or His unmerited favor is a hugely important understanding for us to have in the body of Christ. But it doesn't mean that law is a bad thing. It's the law or the principles of government or of governing that, you know, make the kingdom of God what it is. They are moral and ethical boundaries that we live within in order for that kingdom to function. Uh, but, you know, we see in Romans 13, 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. The Greek word for powers means authority. Every other translation that I've read, in recent times anyway, uh, uses the word authority. So I'm going to put that into the King James rendering that we're reading right now. Let every soul be subject unto the higher authorities. For there is no authority but of God. The authorities that be are ordained of God. 
Now, this might puzzle somebody. We, we think that, oh, well, the only uh, form of government that is really going to be a blessing to its constituency is constitutional democracy, where people elect their own representatives. But every office of authority, and if we're talking governments now, yeah, constitutional democracy is one of many. Could be a monarchy. Uh, could be a dictatorship. There are benevolent dictatorships. But God gives and ordains offices of authority to bring order to social life for those that live under that authority. And he says there is no office of authority but God. That doesn't mean that every man that stands in an office of authority has been put there by God or is a godly man. But the office he stands in is ordained of God. And the next verse makes it clear that we need to be attentive to this because whoso resisteth the power or authority resisteth the ordinance of God and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now I find myself on occasion, you know, irritated when I see law breaking when I see vandalism, uh, destruction of property and uh, injury coming to people and then those folks getting away with it, it seems like. They disappear and, you know, law enforcement can't find them. Uh, so it seems like they've gotten, gotten away with it. And in some quarters, we've become so bashful about the need for law and order that we even want to disband law enforcement. So it seems like all of these lawbreakers are getting away with it. Don't you be concerned about that because God says they're going to receive to themselves damnation. That's worse than anything we could do to them. And so this should make us realize we need to be praying for these folks. We need to be praying for their salvation their safety because they're looking at a level of damnation they can't even imagine as a result of creating a lawless society. But let's continue reading. The next verse says, Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Are you going to fear your authorities? your governing authorities, will thou not be afraid of them? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Now we're going to see uh, a distinction being made shortly between uh, doing things that are good, doing things that are evil. And so that means we need a measurement to determine what would be good, what would be evil, because the line isn't always clear. There are a lot of things that humanistic, secular mindsets say are good, but in fact are contrary to the Word, which means they are evil. So we go to the Word of God to define between good and evil. And we see that authority and those that stand in it, the rulers that are referred to here, are to be a terror only to the evil, not to those that do good. So if you live on the basis of the word, because that's the only place you find a definition, a proper definition of what's good, 
than even a, a, an unsaved ruler or person that stands in an office of authority will wind up doing things that are good for you. That's what this says. But it's important that you know the distinction between good and evil because the Bible is the higher order of truth than any law that man makes. It is a higher law. God's law and principle gave birth to this physical arena that we live in. It is the higher law. So, you know, in our approach to life, uh, we need to understand that we obey the law of the land that we live in to the extent that it doesn't violate the higher law of God. So, you know, you're not a lawbreaker. You are to obey law, civil law, as well as God's law, but civil law only to the extent that it doesn't contradict God's law. And if you live that way, God will take care of you. Doesn't matter who the ruler may be. A lot of people get uptight because some unsaved person is in an office of authority. And so they, you know, they uh, array themselves against that person uh, based on the fact that he's an unbeliever. But God often uses unbelievers to promote his purposes in the earth. He'll influence them through other people around him or perhaps just, you know, by the power of his, you know, his presence will influence even an unbeliever to do things that are going to be consistent with what's good for you as a believer, a member of God's kingdom. Amen. Now, you know, this is all laying a foundation and a base. But you always obey the higher law of God. You know, the governor here in Minnesota enacted laws that I felt, and as many of you did, uh, were inconsistent with the law of God, so we filed a lawsuit. And you'll be happy to know, if you don't already, that we won it a week or so ago. We joined with one other church, a Baptist church. Lo and behold, the Baptists are good, good folks. Amen. That's where I got saved, is in a Baptist church. But basically, um, you know, we won the lawsuit. What, what occurred uh, was that uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the governor uh, made a motion with the court to dismiss our lawsuit uh, on the grounds of it being frivolous. And, uh, you know, the court slapped him down. Praise God. Amen for that. Uh, and, of course, that, that was a harbinger to, you know, uh, our governor and the attorney general that if they proceeded with this lawsuit, they were going to lose. So they entered into a settlement negotiation with us, and um, we settled the lawsuit. We have no restrictions on church, church anymore. And basically, and basically, you know, uh, that should affect the, the status of all of the churches in Minnesota. So, uh, you know, it was a significant 
It was a significant victory that God wrought. Uh, and basically, it's a matter of us doing it the right way. You know, we didn't get our way, so, you know, um, we could have rebelled and burned a few buildings and uh, made some threats, and, uh, or we could do it the way that our constitutional documents allow us to do it legally and trust the Lord to, to take care of it, which He did. So we always obey the higher law the law of God, if there's a difference between that and civil law. But in America, we're very fortunate because, you know, as I've shared in the past, you know, I'd say over 80% of our laws are consistent with the Word of God. Because according to a University of Houston study done in 1970, over 80% of the source material for our founding documents, our Constitution and our Bill of Rights, came from the Bible. And so most of our laws are going to be consistent with the Bible. So we are indeed fortunate uh, to live where we do. But there are things that are mysteries about all of this. You know, how do we actually become a hinderer of lawlessness? What do we have to do to, you know, to put a stop to all of the, the anarchy and the uh, the law-breaking that we see going on around us. Uh, if we as the church are the hinderer of lawlessness, I mean, is it just automatic? Does our presence here just automatically hinder the revelation of the Antichrist or the spirit of Antichrist or the spirit of anarchy and lawlessness? The answer to that is no. It is not automatic. Let's read, uh, begin reading in verse 8 of Romans 13 here. We are told to owe no man, that means no man, believer or unbeliever, owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Now this is the highest law of all, the law of God, and we're told that in our covenant we've got one law that fulfills everything, and that is the law of love. We go on to read in the next verse, uh, Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Next verse. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So here's what we need to know about having an effect on the lawlessness that we see. Lawlessness doesn't just begin in the society that we live in. It begins in the family. When children are raised without moral boundaries or are not trained. That means forced or required to live within those boundaries. Then you have a potential lawbreaker. Now you're talking about the body of Christ, the church, those who are intended by God to be a hinderer of the lawlessness that is in this earth. The only way we will hinder lawlessness as believers is to the extent we will hinder lawlessness uh, 
that we live by the law of love. And this doesn't imply, and hopefully you're not taking it this way, uh, that you can love somebody out of their rebellion. You can't any more than you can pray somebody out of their rebellion, any more than you can use your faith to believe somebody out of their rebellion. Not so. I mean, you can certainly change the atmosphere a person's living in to be more conducive not to rebel through prayer, through, you know, uh, your faith. But every individual is a free moral agent. God does not override their right to choose their own destiny, whether it's, you know, for cursing and death as opposed to blessing and life. It's not His will that any should perish, but the choice is up to the individual. And so for that reason, you can't manipulate someone else's experience of life through your faith, through your prayer, or by loving them. But the Bible says, and we'll see this in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 in a moment. I don't want to go there quite yet. Uh, but we're going to look at the love chapter for a moment. You'll see that love never fails. Never fails to do what? The purpose that it's there for, which is to hinder lawlessness. It is the fulfilling of God's law, which is the counterpoint to the lawlessness or anarchy that Satan wants to generate in this earth and will to the extent that people violate moral boundaries. And if you don't violate moral or ethical boundaries, that is because you have given priority to living within the parameters of God's principle, God's law. And that provides the, the boundaries for human behavior and relationship to one another. And when you love somebody, you have the capacity to do that. I used to struggle with this a little bit because I got human love mixed up with God's love, and, you know, and I equated it with something a little bit weak and mushy. I don't know how else to say it. That's the way it seemed to be. But then, you know, I finally had the, the really the understanding that love is an act. It's not a feeling or an emotion, and it is an act of giving. Giving to another person. And so there's so many ways we give to other people's best interests. We give them prayer. We give them encouragement. We give them exhortation. We give them resource. We give them time. We give them a listening ear. There are so many ways we give to other people in a meaningful fashion that will position their lives like nothing else will for the goodness and love of God if they're an unbeliever or if they're a believer. There's nothing you can do in this life to more influence the direction of other people than to love them. None. For you to love them and bring them into a revelation of how much God loves them. Because love casts out fear. Fear is the basis of every demonic decision 
that an individual makes. Because fear is always rooted in self-concern. The love of God always takes our concern outward to someone else. And when we love other people by giving to them however we can, then we loose a force in this earth, in our community, in our nation, however you want to term it, that will hinder lawlessness, that will keep the spirit of Antichrist at bay until it's time for us to be raptured and taken out of here. I'm preaching better than you guys are responding this morning. This is just the truth. And we often don't look at life this way. I mean, you know, for a long time in my life, I, even after I realized what love was, you know, it's giving to somebody, it's an act. It's not to be confused with the romantic or, or you know, emotional feeling of love. That's phileo. God's love is agape. And even after I realized that, you know, it's like it was still more of a concept than a personal reality. You know, it's been a, a lot slower growth for me than I would have liked for it to have been. But I still made plenty of room to lose my temper at somebody, to give them a piece of my mind, to set them straight. I had a hard time forgetting when somebody had really done me wrong you know, because there was going to be an opportunity someday to be sure they reaped as they sowed. I mean, so it's kind of like I knew what the Word said about love, but it's, it's, it didn't constrain all of my decision-making or my behavior, and it still doesn't. And I still make excuses. You know, I, I just got through saying recently that both of my sons know how to push my hot button. Like that excuses me for flying off the handle or losing my temper or saying something I shouldn't say. Well, they push my hot button. We have all kinds of little internal mechanisms to keep from having to look at ourselves too closely. But the truth, church, is that until we learn to make our decisions on the basis of God's love, there's going to be lawlessness in our family, in our churches, in our communities, and in our nation. Because this is where we headed off. Do you want to be a hinderer of lawlessness, or do you want to be a contributor to the lawless spirit that's already in the earth? Let's go to, um, well, we're there, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, this is the New International Version. It's a little shorter. It's, you know, uh, I like the words. Love is patient. Love is kind. God is long-suffering with you, with me. And boy, we'd be in a bad way if he weren't. So we need to be equally as patient with people that we're thrown with sometimes. And we can't. We can't do much about that. We're related to them. We live with them. Or perhaps, you know, work very closely with somebody. There, there are people that we're, we're going to be with, and there are always going to be problems that could arise because they are human just as you are. But it's a matter of being patient. 
being long-suffering, not getting uptight, not losing your temper, not saying things out of spite or bitterness. It's important that you be patient and kind. You know, kindness is a lost art in today's society. It really is. Think about it. Uh, but kindness is huge. If you can't be patient and you can't be kind, guess what you're doing? You are enabling the spirit of Antichrist. First, in your own family. And then your immediate social circle. Your community of friends or church, whatever it may be. But you are enabling the very spirit that you're put in this earth to hinder when you don't love. And you know, I used to wonder why certain things happened in my life. Because I prayed really hard. I'm generous. I give. I go to church occasionally. Reminds me of another joke, you know. One you've heard, I told a long time ago, but you heard about this guy that got up in the morning and said, I'm just not, uh, told his mom, I'm just not going to church today. No, it was his wife. I'm not going to church today. I'm just tired of it. I've been in church for the last several weeks and hadn't missed a, a Sunday, and I'm going to stay home today. And she said, honey, you've got to go to church. You're the pastor. You know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I identify with that, that feeling. And I got myself off, off track here, but going back to 1 Corinthians 13. So at any rate, love is patient, love is kind, or you're promoting the kind of spirit that ignores boundaries, moral and ethical boundaries that make life work. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. You know, when you do something right, do something well, it's real easy to say, whoa. Look at me. I got this thing going here, man. No, the moment you begin taking credit for the good things that happen to you or in your life, as opposed to crediting the only one that brings good into your life, and that's the Lord, you are being proud. You'll always boast. You'll find yourself being envious of somebody that does things better than you. You know, I used to really... I mean, uh, I don't know if i got time to even go there, but, but flying was important to me. And, uh, you know, I was certain that I was going to win the Commandant's Cup in pilot training. And that's the guy that finishes at the top of his class in the flight phase. And that's different than academics. I don't mind finishing in the middle of the pack academically. <laughs> but flying, you know, I was convinced that I was the best pilot that was ever going to happen. And Lynn remembers, we, we married while I was in pilot training, but uh, my nemesis was Pete McHugh. <laughs> Pete, if you hear this message, I do love you, brother. I really do. Um, I don't know if he's a brother or not. I never took the time to find out. But he was in pilot training uh, to learn to fly fighters uh, for the Air National Guard. He was an airline pilot. He had about five or 6,000 hours of flying already when he came to pilot training. And uh, he wasn't going to be on active duty. He was going to learn how to fly fighters for the Air National Guard. So that's why he was there. And he was my nemesis. I had everybody else, you know, 
I was, I was way out in front of them, but Pete, it was tough. And uh, I mean, our final check rides and formation and aerobatics and formation aerobatics and instruments and navigation and air combat maneuvering, all of these things, you know, it was coming right down to the wire with Pete. And uh, I was so proud that God didn't let me win it. I lost to Pete McHugh by three one-hundredths of a point. <laughs> that devastated me for years, you know. <laughs> so it's a matter of pride uh, being, you know, something that is really insidious and that we all have to be aware of if we do something well, and, you know, and, and all of us have got areas where we do things well. Because we're gifted of God, naturally and spiritually. Uh, just realize that, you know, pride is one sure way you're going to keep the spirit of Antichrist moving in your family and in your community. Continue with the, the, the next verse, please. It does not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. It is not easily angered, don't go yet, go back, stay there for a moment. Not being easily angered, I like the message rendering. It says, doesn't fly off the handle. Because that's what I was really good at doing. Say was, meaning as of a few days ago, I was really good at doing that. <laughs> but I've gotten a handle on flying off the handle now. So, But if you're easily angered, if you are self-seeking, self-concerned, if you are the reason for 99% of the decisions you make, your welfare, what you want, hey, you're enabling the very spirit that is dividing your family, your church, your nation. You've just got to start thinking this way. If you keep a record of wrongs, Lynn and I would marriage counsel earlier in the church when we were the only ones around to counsel. And, uh, you know, so we did a fair amount of that. And I was always, it tickled me. The lists that people have of what their spouse did to them over the last 10 years. You talk about a record of wrongs? Man, uh, well, you are enabling the very spirit that is destroying everything you love. Let's go to the next verse. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. You know, there are times when I've rejoiced over something evil happening to an opponent or someone that had accused me of something or uh, had offended me. But you can't allow that to occur. I mean, God loves them just as much as, guess who? You. And, you know, He doesn't delight... And their wrong choices that often produce cursing and blessing, you can't delight in it either. The next verse says, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This verse in the King James talks about believing the best and hoping the best. Do you believe the best of everybody, even the ones that you have consistently had challenges with? Do you believe the best of them? Do you hope the best for them? Now think about it. 
Because there's some people right now that, that I really have to work to hope the best about or believe the best for because they have over a decade or more produced ongoing pain and heartache. So how do you believe the best of somebody under that kind of condition? Well, I think one of the main ways you do is when you realize how serious it is if you don't. If you don't, you are no longer a hinderer of lawlessness. You are an enabler of the spirit of Antichrist who divides in order to conquer. Amen. 